This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. The 50th Top 500 list. Live from the Beowulf Bash. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening in to a special SC-17 episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360, joined again by Michael Feldman, managing editor at Top500.org. Michael, welcome to Denver. Yeah, welcome to Denver again. We're back in uh, back in Denver this year. It's a uh, exciting as usual. We had a lot of big news today, and now we're going to talk about the list and a few other things. We're going to talk about the list. We're going to talk about the plenary session. The show's starting to kick off, but most importantly, we're at the Beowulf Bash, which is always a, a fun event, and at the Beowulf Bash, this is the 22nd year of the Beowulf Bash. We're joined by Don Becker, who's one of the progenitors of this party. Don, i got to ask you, is, is this what you envisioned when you started the, the Beowulf Revolution 22 years ago? We didn't expect this at all, no. Our first Beowulf Bash was a much smaller event, uh, probably about 60 people, and beers literally in a galvanized tub with ice in it. A few snacks, and that was it. One of my favorite things Tom Sterling said to me about the origins of the Beowulf Bash, it goes back to when people were building their own Beowulf clusters. And he said, you know, we didn't get invited to any of the good parties, the vendor parties. So we had a, a pass the hat for a keg of beer and some pretzels. And what I love about it is that all these years later, it's now become a major party. And Intersect 360 is proud to be one of the sponsors of it. But it's still a very open community party with a lot of sponsorship and a lot of participation. Well, it is a pretty surprising party. Vendors that you would normally think of as competitors are sponsors here, and it's a party where the community comes together. It's an opening night event where people can talk about what's going to happen in the coming week. And what a fun location. you got Lucky Strike, you got a bowling tournament going on, a whole arcade out there, uh, a great band called Soul School's been playing, so thanks for putting it together for us. We always seem to have a great location. We can be a lot more relaxed about our location than most vendors would be able to with a vendor focus. This is all about the community and making sure everybody has a good time. Don Becker, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. So if you've never been to a Beowulf Bash, next time you come to Supercomputing, make sure you mark that on Monday night. It's quite an event, but let's get to the show, Michael. One of the first things is it opened with the plenary, and I'd like to talk about that for a second because there was a really interesting panel uh, essentially on smart cities called the Century of the City. Charlie Catlett, who's the director of the Urban Center for Computation and Data, moderated a panel together with Pete Beckman from Northwestern Argonne Institute of Science and Engineering, Deborah Lamb, who's the managing director of smart cities at Georgia Tech, and Michael Matt Miller, from the, uh, who's the CTO for the city of Seattle, which is a pretty interesting topic. It is an interesting topic, and, and you can also consider that 10 years ago, this wouldn't even have been a topic at SC. I mean, this is basically a new sort of application area for the whole space, and it's an interesting way to start off a conference. We've seen a lot of these urban applications before, but what's really brought them forward is the amount of deep learning, machine learning, AI kinds of applications, and that was a major thread 
that went through this. We can't recap all of the, the plenary talk on the podcast, although you can see a lot of the highlights from it on our Twitter handle at Intersect360. But just to give you an idea, they were talking about in the city of Chicago having things like sensors out on the street that can sense an out-of-control car that's speeding and approaching an intersection dangerously. They can put up red lights to keep other people out and prevent an accident. I thought that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of cool technology associated with these smart cities. I, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, developments over the next few years. The, the city life is going to change because of this. You can, you can already tell. And I know a big thing we're going to be talking about throughout the whole conference is this confluence of AI, the deep learning, machine learning, together with HPC and how that evolves. So we're going to get to a lot more of that news. But the biggest news for today, of course, is not only the top 500 list, which we always cover early in the show, but this one's particularly special. It's the 50th iteration of the top 500 list. So what's big on the list now? Well, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of turnover on the list, but the, the big story there really is that China really took a big lead over the U.S. in the number of systems, and not just in the number of systems, but in absolute performance. So right now, in this list, China has 202 out of the 500 systems, and the U.S. is all the way down to 143, and both of those are records. China's never had anything close to being that high, and the U.S. has never had that few systems on the list since its inception. Right, this is, right. This is the, the lowest proportion of systems we've ever seen in the United States on the top 500 list. So what do you think this means in terms of Chinese dominance in supercomputing? Well, I, I think it's not as bad as, as what those numbers portray. I think a lot of these systems from China are actually hyperscale systems from web companies and other companies that weren't necessarily what a lot of people here would consider scientific high-performance computing. But uh, they were very aggressive about getting Linpack on a lot of these larger deployments, larger data centers in China. So that's how that's how this bit worked out. But um, it's still a, an interesting achievement to get all those uh, all those systems under the Chinese banner. And uh, you know, it, Chinese are definitely coming up. They still own the top two slots in the in the list. Uh, nothing changed there. So it's not like they're not uh, well well represented here. But I think the uh, the discrepancy between the number of systems and even performance is a little bit overblown, and it's, it's kind of hard to gauge that without looking at the individual systems. I take your point about that, that, you know, that it's not a true indicator of the HPC market as it is. They have uh, 40% of the top 500 list is in China. Really, 10% of the HPC market by revenue is in China. But I think it is important in terms of the strategic direction, that when you see this level of national initiative, particularly from vendors like Lenovo, to stand up and have their systems be counted. It's not just that they're going for the PR value of the, of the list, but it's a real uh, statement of intention, of direction, of the strategic importance of HPC at a, at a country level. And you're seeing that not only at the top of the list, but throughout the list. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there's a, there's a great awareness within China, within these companies, that are China-based, that uh, the HPC market is, a, is an important market to them. And even if these systems might not be traditional systems, it's still something that's on their mind and, and in, the, in, their, uh, in their game plan. Now, while we're on the top of the list, let's talk about that a little bit. There were two changes in the top ten. Right, there were two changes. So we've got a new number four system, the Gyoku supercomputer. That's a Zetascaler architecture that's deployed at uh, Japan's uh, Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology. That's Jamstack. Jamstack, and that was the same place that uh, the Earth Simulator was deployed at. So this was a, uh, 
an achievement because they used uh, an arc, an arc, or an accelerator that we don't hear much about. It's it's PESI Computers uh, Computing's SC2 accelerator. So it's their second generation accelerator. It's basically a a floating point accelerator. It's very efficient. This is their their second version of it, and they got a lot of them together. The, all told, that system had uh, something like 19 million, almost 20 million cores. So that was a lot of concurrency. Uh, in fact, that's the highest level of concurrency of any system ever in the top 500 list. So it's a, a big system in a lot of different ways. That PESI architecture is very interesting, and we're interested in tracking how that continues to get deployed. Now, that wasn't the other only. That wasn't the only change in the top 10. We saw another one that wasn't a new system, but an upgraded system. Yeah, well, in fact, that, that Gyoku system was also an upgraded system. That was, uh, it was further down on the list, and that went all the way up. And the, the other upgrade was Trinity, um, and that got upgraded uh, thanks to uh, the Knight's Landing Xeon 5 processor. The original was just Xeon processors, so they switched them out for Xeon 5s, and that came all the way up to number 7. Um, at, uh, popped out at uh, 90, or I should say... 14 petaflops, a little over 14 petaflops. So that was good enough to get the number seven ranking. And we should say, now that even those were the only two systems, it pushed everybody else down and pushed the Titan system, the US, the fastest US system, down to number five because of the Japanese system. And then everybody else moved down a couple because of the, the two new ones. Now, the whole top 10 system is over 10 petaflops. That's the, that's the entry point into the top 10. 10 petaflops to get into the top 10. Let's talk about some of the systems that aren't there, too. You're talking about the U.S. now being pushed down to number five. Some of the systems that did not make it for this iteration of the top 500 list, we didn't get any of the early coral systems that we originally thought we might get by this time. The Summit and Sierra systems, they're really waiting for IBM Power 9. I think those are going to become available pretty soon, but not on time for this list. Nor did we see Tianhe 2A. Uh, for this list. So we're going to see some pretty big changes at the top of this list pretty soon. Yeah, I think the June list next year will have all of those systems in there, or they should. I mean, the Tanha 2A system just got delayed. They were supposed to have it by the end of the year. They still might have it very quickly. So that one almost certainly will be on the June list. And I think they're aiming for that Summit system, at least, to be on the June list as well, and probably Sierra as well. Like you said, they're waiting for the Power 9s from IBM, and, and they're, uh, they're just around the corner. Now, we talked about a big Japanese system at the top. That's not the only place where Japan was really showing up. The Green 500 also comes out together with Top 500, and there was a nice big surprise for Japan at the top of that list. Right. In fact, it was the same architecture as then the Gyoku system. It's that Zetascalar architecture with the PESI SC2 accelerators. Those top three systems were that architecture and those systems. So they, they, got, they got the first three spots, and they were all around... Uh, 17 gigaflops per watt in that area. Um, the, f the number four system was actually the, uh, the Volta system that was built by NVIDIA, their, their in-house system. And that came out at number four. And I think the number five system was another Zetascalar system. So Japan was very well represented at the top of the list. And it basically uh, out-greened out the, uh, the V100s and, the, and NVIDIA this time around. Now, we're talking about these accelerated systems on the green 500. Overall, there was a slight gain of accelerator systems over top 500. Yeah, there were 11 more accelerator systems, and most of those were these, uh, or, well, it were either GPUs from NVIDIA or these, uh, these PESI SC2 systems. Uh, I don't think we had any more of the older uh, Xeon Phi coprocessor systems. Those actually got uh, 
got mothballed by, by Intel. They're not going to sell those coprocessors anymore. They're only selling Xeon Phi as the main processing units now. Right, and there are some, still some, some Xeon Phi systems on the list. We're just not counting those as accelerators. Those are the main processors. Those are like CPUs now, so they're counted. Sort well, of last thing I want to talk about here, since we're on compute architectures, let's talk about one more thing that's not there. We still don't have an ARM system on the top 500 list anywhere. That's right. We still don't have an ARM system. Um, some of the ARM activity is happening right now. There's, there's a lot of ARM activity, which I think we can talk about on the next podcast. Having uh, coming out with the Thunder... Uh, X2 chips and uh, companies like Cray and HPE and, and others are starting to ad- adopt those and come out with products. I think we'll start to see those roll out next year. But right now, it's a little early, and um, I don't know if we'll even see some next time. They're, they're just kind of working their way into the ecosystem now, but there is progress there. It's just not on the top 500. This is a concern for me because we're talking about major exascale initiatives that are based on ARM processors at, com- at country levels that they're talking about being a few years away. But there's currently no ARM system on the top 500 list anywhere. So we're gonna have, that's a long way to go from petascale up to exascale that we haven't seen yet. That's a lot of development in both hardware and software. But we're talking about progress on the top 500 list. We're very ha- glad that we can have Horse Simon join us on this podcast. Horse is one of the progenitors of the top 500 list. He's the chief research officer at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and has been with us all along for all 50 iterations of the top 500 list. Horse, thanks for joining us on the This Week in HPC. Glad to be here. Thank you. Horace, that's the big thing I wanted to ask you about. You've been doing this for 25 years now. How does the HPC industry today compared to what you were looking at when you first started the top 500 list 25 years ago? Well, I think a way of thinking about this is going back 25 years and think it's supercomputing 92 and compare supercomputing 92 to what we see today. So it's very, very different. We now have a 12,000 people at the show we have a large number of vendors, big exhibition space, so supercomputing HPC has become much more commercial. On the other hand, I find that if somebody would come from 1992 to here today, would not be super surprised because a lot of the things that were done in the early 90s continue to be the technology that we're using today. So. You've been watching the HPC industry all along, and of course the top 500 list is a major topic every year. In what ways do you think the top 500 list itself has influenced the course of the HPC industry over time? I think that is a really good question. There's, of course, a lot of debate on how positioning a system on the top 500 became a goal in itself, which is not related to real performance of the system or is not related to any utility of the system. There's a more subtle way that I think the top 500 list is also influencing our thinking. I just heard you and Michael talk about the fact that the Chinese now have more than 200 systems and the U.S. is down to only about 140 or so. This is a huge change. Without the top 500 list, we would not notice that change. On the other hand, because of the list, this is a change that we're more concerned about it. So it works really in two different ways that the list influences the way the community thinks about developments, in particular political developments. One thing I think is unquestionable that's a positive about the top 500 list is it certainly attracts attention. And that brings a lot of investment into the high-performance computing industry by virtue of the fact that we have 
such a uh, palatable way to, to say, here are the most powerful supercomputers in the world. And that's been a, a, a major source of investment over 25 years. So in the course of, of those 25 years, we've, we've seen some real architectural shifts. So, you know, 25 years ago, we weren't really seeing a lot of clusters. Then we went through the whole Beowulf revolution. We, we went into standardized architectures. People talked about commodity and industry standards. And there was this notion of portability from one cluster to the next. Now, with the diversity in computer architectures, we're seeing a return swinging back towards specialization again. From your perspective, what do you see as the pros and cons of these trends? Well, Edison, I think this is a very insightful observation because I think almost we've made a whole uh, back-to-the-future turn here. The top 500 list in 1992 was created because we were in this technology transition and we were moving from vector computers to massively parallel systems. And the list was created because we did not know how to rate these two systems against each other. So a common yardstick had to be developed. After a long period of consistency of very similar architectures, very similar program models, we are at a point today where we see suddenly all new ideas coming up. GPUs are just one example. but as you know, we've been talking about machine learning, uh, other applications. There's a lot of discussion about post-Moore computing, about quantum computing, neuromorphic computing. So suddenly, the whole space has opened up again, and uh, we're hopefully in a couple of years get away from the monolithic architectures of the past. In supercomputing, the exciting thing to me has always been looking at the applications, not just, you know, how many flops a supercomputer has, but what can it do? And this has always been exciting throughout the course of our whole industry. You're, of course, one of the leading facilities. What are some of the things that excite you in terms of the application trends or breakthroughs that you see coming, uh, both out of work that you're doing at Lawrence Berkeley and also that you see across the industry? Well, there are a number of things. So first of all, we always look for the new one. We shouldn't forget that many of the old applications move forward to, towards exascale, and this is a challenge in itself. But if I look at new applications, I see a couple of things. First of all, as mentioned before already, machine learning has made major impact, and machine learning now has become also a tool for scientific investigation. We use machine learning, for example, to look at astronomical observations and detect supernova in, the, in images from the sky. Um, another trend is really that we use often supercomputers now for much more for, uh, in a sense, design. So a project that's really exciting at Berkeley Lab is this so-called materials project. In the materials project, more than 60,000 materials have been on a computer analyzed, and those 60, the properties of those 60,000 materials are out there in a big database for anybody to look at. This is remarkable because actually less than 30,000 of those 60,000 materials ever have been synthesized by chemists. So we can do on the computer much more than chemists can do in the lab. And those materials, for example, can be used to examine new alternative designs for batteries. So using the computer in this exhaustive search, in this combinatorial way for exploring a large design space is something really, really new. We've been talking to Horace Simon, one of the great voices behind the Top 500 list and uh, from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. Horace, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So, Michael, we see a lot of these great applications that Horace is talking about. This is the sort of thing we're looking for at supercomputing, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's going to be a lot of sessions on those topics and others. There's a lot of action going on here. And, and 
these emerging application areas are fascinating to me. I mean, you talked about the smart cities, but everything associated with, you know, machine learning and, and the data analytics space is really broadening the application uh, horizons of this of this community quite a bit. It's going to be a great week. We always look forward to supercomputing. I'm particularly excited for a lot of the sessions that are coming up this week. I'm looking forward to giving my market update talk tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the DDN booth. Uh, we'll have a lot more content uh, coming out to our listeners and our readers uh, in, the, in the course of the next couple of days. Yes, we will. All right, Michael. Will. We'll be back for a wrap-up uh, SC17 update podcast at the end of the show. And then I think the amount of news that we're getting from this show will carry us along for uh, several podcasts to come, maybe through the end of the year. Yeah, I think so. We'll be, we'll be catching up with everything, and we'll just be uh, collating it and uh, sorting it out until January, I think. All right, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again to Don Becker and Horace Simon, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.